we're going to jump back in this week into this uh, conversation we've had on Vantage Point. How many of you guys enjoyed enjoy that little sermonette last week? We didn't have a lot of time. A little fire on it. Go grab that on our podcast um, as we've been going after this. I'm going to invite you to turn with me to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. And we're going we're gonna to read here for a little bit. We're going to have it on the screen for you as well. And we're going to read verse 1 through verse 13. All right, verse 1 through verse 13. And I'm going to be reading out of the ESV. It says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes come into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to one who wears the fine clothing and say, sit here in good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinction among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. For he has said, do not commit adultery, and also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, for the judgment is without mercy for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Amen. 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 Um, we've been opening up with this um, with this uh, this thought that it's time for us to begin to move our feet of our heart and get a new vantage point. You know, some of us have been in situations where we've been looking at the same thing over and over and over again, same situations, same circumstances in our lives, um, the same relationships in our lives, and we've had one perspective on it, but God is inviting us to pick up the feet of our heart and move to a different vantage point so we can begin to see from another perspective. And uh, how many guys have begun to take some steps with your heart to move to a new vantage point as we've been talking about this? There's been some great testimonies coming in about people getting clarity simply not by looking at something, um, a, a different object, if you will, or a different focus, but simply looking at it from a different perspective. You know, some of us in our, in our, um, in our journeys, in our lives, we come up in difficult situations, and it's just much easier to want to just stop. It's much easier just to want to say, hey, well, I'll just, you know, um, I'll, I'll just go about this a different way. And, uh, and how many know that God, God likes to see us through things, not just around things? Can I get a big amen? You know, it's interesting because uh, I've seen people go around things before, and, uh, and, it, and it doesn't mean that it can't work. It just means it might not prove as much character inside of you as going through something. Come on, somebody. And, and I really feel like as a, I, I feel like this is a, a prophetic message that I've been in the last few weeks. I'm calling us into a season to really want to take things full on right, you know, in front of us. Take them head on, if you will. And to really see what's available when we really begin to engage our heart on the things that maybe are the most difficult in our lives. And, and I think that there's something uh, available to us um, as, a, as a church when it comes to taking on even some of the challenges that are around us in our community and the city around us. I've been, as I've been talking about Detroit, uh, this is not something that is just, you know, we had a few prayer events over the summer and we did a little of this and now we're doing a little fundraiser. This is, this is not just a little back scratch that we're itching. Um, this is something that I've been pouring into and trying to get us ready for and trying to get our hearts to expand specifically in this area because I believe that you're fraudulent if the city isn't better because you exist. Come on, somebody. Come on. I, I said something in the city should change if we're going to exist. And, and we do exist. We're a powerful family. Look at your neighbor right now and say, hello, champion. I mean, you're surrounded by greatness right now. By greatness. You got powerful people sitting around you. You know, some of you have titles and some of you don't and some of you are whatever, but it doesn't matter because there's a title in heaven that says son or daughter that is over you. Come on, somebody. 
which means all of heaven is behind you to infect change in your world. And so, you know, there, there's something really significant about us um, uh, uh, overcoming uh, limitations that are around us to, to see change through. And, and I really believe that there's, there's a change that's available for the city of Detroit um, that is um, going to be available not because an organization or a family or a business or a neighborhood just gets excited about the change, but when people really um, begin to open up their heart to how change could really happen um, as a whole. And I say that because I, you know, I, I think that when organizations get involved, I think something good can happen. But I think when people encounter God and when people have an internal transformation who actually live in neighborhoods, then we can really see some change. And so, you know, some of you may live in the city of Detroit proper. Some of you, you know, mo- I think most of us don't uh, from the statistics that I know about our church. Um, but whether you live there or you don't live there, um, we, we have an opportunity to go and make an investment into people who live different than us, who probably think different than us. And one of the things the Lord told me was that we needed to treat Detroit as a nation. And, and when we go into other nations, and we're doing our school and ministry right now, it's called Impact Discipling Nations is the curriculum track. And, and one of, the, one of the, the key ingredients of this is to really understand what transformation really looks like. Many people are motivated by um, by wanting to make disciples of nations, if you will, and they're motivated by, you know, John 3.16 and just get them to say the prayer and, and, and that's, that's good. But um, and ultimately, there's a, sometimes there can be a hook, you know, in our agenda, our religious agenda in that John 3.16 moment. And the hook is this, that I believe you're transformed when you begin to look like me. And, and I think one of the reasons that we're needing to pick up the feet of our heart to shift our vantage point is to begin to detox some of these agendas or blinders, the things that we've had, and when it, when it comes to us really being able to work in transformational ministry. One of the things that you don't need to do is become more like Drew Neal. One of the things you do need to do is become more like Jesus. Come on, somebody. And so what's great is that, you know, I can get an upgrade in my life and I can do something, you know, that, that, is a, that is a proving to God and I can have a kingdom outcome in my life and it's amazing and I can look like Jesus. But what's so exciting is that you can look like Jesus and look different than me. Someone say that's good news. Woo, the pressure's off, everybody. You don't got to be like me. Isn't that great? <laughs> I mean, that's just funny in our culture because that's nothing that we even come close to. But it's like there's something powerful about understanding that the Christ in you truly is the hope of glory. You know, there's, there's a need for us to, to begin to understand that not only is the Christ in me the hope of glory, but the Christ in you is the hope of glory. The Christ in, 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 that, in, in the Muslim man is the hope of glory. He might not know what's there yet, but there's something that was put inside of of that individual before the foundation of the world that when their heart awakens to it, it becomes alive. Come on, there's some Christ in your neighbor. There's some Christ in your cubicle mate. There's some Christ in your boss. There's some Christ in them that just needs to be awakened and aligned with the reality of, of who they really are, and then something special can begin to happen. But I tell you what, when people begin to profess Jesus, one of the expectations that we can't have is that they're just going to look like me now. Come on, you know, it's funny, one of, one of the learned behaviors we have in, in churchianity, you know, is, you know, is in our preaching styles, you know. Like churches, you know, especially denominations, if you will, or, you know, rivers or flows of churches, networks of churches can even have this, you know, just a, as, as a preaching style. And, you know, and it's, you know, I, I grew up in like Pentecostal church, and so we just, we shouted at everybody. I mean, the whole front row got a shower. I mean, I mean, it was just like, that's what I came from. And so I remember at, you know, I gave my first message when I was um, oh, how, uh, 10 years old. And, and I, I preached out of Matthew chapter 6. And, and, I, and I shouted. <laughs> Lord, teach us how to pray. This is what I was taught. I was taught that I would become transformed into a preacher if I spit and shouted. Come on. 
And I'm, I'm not like, I'm not stepping on any toes of like imitate me. How many of Paul did say imitate me? How many of there's a biblical model in discipleship to duplicate the characteristics and the traits inside of other people and mentorship? That's mentorship, you know? Come on, but how many of whole ideology that whole people groups will, will be transformed when they live the way that I live and, and my interpretation of first world amenities? Come on, somebody. Is, that is not transformation. And so we need to begin to, like, open up our perspectives to what it really means um, to love people where they're at. And, and, uh, and sometimes that statement can get really messy because it's like, well, you know, we can't just love the actions in their lives and we can't just let them stay where they're at. And that's true. But how many know that if you're going to call someone forward, that requires a little bit of relationship? How many people do you let jack your wagon in your life and have no relationship with you? And then get a chance to do it again? None. I've only got a few people who can jack my wagon and then me be okay with it. Right? Because that's just how life works. You've got three, four, five of those people in your life that can jack your wagon. And then outside of that, it's like, excuse me? Like, we need to have some feedback now. <laughs> right? And so, you know what? So to me, there's two different conversations here of us, you know, of, of, of the event-based transformation motivations and the actual discipleship motivation. You see, because change does, sustainable change is only possible through, I believe, through fa the fathering heart. Mentorship, development, discipleship, loving people where they're at and calling them forward. But that comes at a great cost and a great sacrifice, doesn't it? And so... So going back here to the, to the book of James, you know, I, I think that we need to begin to open ourselves up to realizing who God wants to be in and through people without showing any partiality. You know, it's exciting right now what's happening in Detroit because the downtown is like exploding. And, and meanwhile, the, many of the neighborhoods are still war zones. I mean, they're, they're absolutely devastated. And so um, it could be very easy it is. It just flat out is. It is easier to want to go to the places that are already seeing change. It's easier to want to go do outreach downtown than to go at Livernoy and Six Mile. Just is. It's easier. It comes at, at, a, at a lesser cost. You know, um, there, there's a young man named John Chow. This, uh, he passed away a few days ago. Anyone heard this story? He had some, some type of local connection um, with a few, quite a few people here. He was an ORU graduate, sold out for missions, and he felt called to an island off of India, and I forget the, the, the tribe's name. Um, I believe only dozens of people live on this island, and it's forbidden for anyone to go there by the Indian government. And uh, there's, there's rumors of them being cannibals. There's rumors of all kinds of things, whatever. But John was convinced it was a dream of his that he gained from a, an encounter with the Lord that he would one day go to these people. And so he, uh, he went there illegally, I believe, on November 16th. And while he was there, he was, he was shot at with, with arrows. He escaped the island um, trying to, you know, get these people to know about Jesus. And, you know, so the, the next day he's, he's, he's convinced that this is what he's supposed to do. He writes letters to his family, says, he, I might lose my life. And the next day he does, shot full of arrows, seen being dragged by this tribe on the island. And, you know, and on, on Facebook it was interesting because, you know, his story is being told now and even CNN and a few other new news outlets are telling the story. And, and I, I wonder, like, okay, so the Facebook comments are, are all, like, by Christians are all like, wow, you know, this guy gave his life for the gospel. And then there's a bunch of other people who are not Christians and like, well, he was an idiot. And, and there's a little bit of part of me that's like, I kind of agree with them. That a man who didn't know a language, didn't have any governmental favor, didn't like go through a due process to want to honor the authorities that were there, went and just gave his life. He literally wrote that he was using English, saying, Jesus loves you, to people who were angry and didn't understand. And it's easy to celebrate. Like, I think he'll be, I'm, there, there is a part here that is for sure celebrated in heaven, that he gave his life for the cause of the kingdom. I'm being real, like, I'm walking some lines right now, so give me a little bit of room. 
But, like, is that actually what Jesus did, everybody? You know, I, one of the things that I'm ha- I've had to do is had, I had to relearn Jesus. And, and in this journey of relearning Jesus, I've, I've eliminated stupid, poor Jesus who, like, didn't have an opinion about anything and just decided to die because he was quiet in front of Pontius Pilate. And I've replaced him with a very strong, influential, politically motivated, out of peace, powerful, influential, world-changing leader who understands systems and governments and leverage influence to bring the most infectious change that the world has ever seen. Like, I serve a smart Jesus. Like, he's really smart, you guys. He's brilliant. And ultimately, he gave his life as well. And so I'm not saying this guy didn't have to give his life, you know, didn't have to lay his life down. And I'm not saying that sometimes the things that we do aren't going to be provoking. But what I am saying is, are, are we as Christians willing to do the work to grow in favor with man as much as we are to grow in favor with God? And I think when we commit our lives to both of those things, that the outcomes that we're going to begin to see in our lives will blow away the stories that we've heard so far. Come on, somebody. Is this all right? And, and so, I, you know, um, I, I just bless the child family right now. I know they're, they're devastated and they're lost. And, Lord, we bless the investment this man made in love. Lord, anything in love God can use. Can I get a big amen? Anything in love God can use. God can work with that. He's been working with broken and incomplete scenarios all the time because he works with me. Come on, somebody. Amen. And so, but I think that there's a product here in Christianity where, where we have, we have a, we do have a partiality. And we actually have a partiality for the poor and we have a partiality for the rich. We assume that the poor only need one thing and we're like, oh, bless your heart, just take my money. Take my money, poor person. Poor person, just take my money. That'll fix it. And then we give the front row seat to the rich person. We celebrate who they are and what they've done, and yet they go home and they beat their wife. Right? Right? So there's, there, there's something really significant that I think God is, like, inviting us into. And, like, I just, I just feel the Father's pleasure and his joy right now. He's like, hey, I can work with where you're at, but if you just pick up your heart, the feet of your heart, and if we can shift our vantage point and you can see as I see, what could be available? Tell you what, there's something available for us as a church to begin to understand how to let love be released. I tell you what, I want, I want fire, fire, fire all day long, but I want my fire smart. Come on, I, I, I don't just want fire, I want smart fire. I don't just want a fire hose that, that flies all over the place. I want that hose to hit a fire. Come on, somebody. I just used... Opposing examples, water and fire. You only hear that stuff in church. It's like when the river comes, we want to put out the fire. <laughs> when we want to transform nations, we want the fire. You know, I don't know. Anyways, earth, wind, and fire. Let's write a song. I don't know. I got some skinny jeans on. Let's go. These are, by the way, these are not wife approved skinny jeans today. She said, Drew, change those things. I'm like, I don't have any time. She goes, they're too skinny. I said, they just came out of the dryer. You feel better, babe? Yeah, okay, good. She's like, change them jeans, Drew. Now everyone's looking at my knobby knees. I I got my dad's legs. They're called bird legs. They kind of bow a little bit and knobby knees. Anyways. Got some, got, got some razor blades. Jesus, help us right now. Hallelujah. Oh, and oh, they need some, they, right here, these some razor blades, yeah. Yeah, you charge $50 more for those things. Yeah, 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 yeah. Got, got some tears in them, it's really cool. Per, per leg, amen. So, like, what, what does it look like for us just to begin to, like, open our hearts up and say, God, what, what more is available in this conversation? How do, how do we actually shift poverty? Like, how do we actually do that in a sustainable way? 
you know, if we're not going to show partiality, you know, if we're going to really meet the need of the, of the poor person and see the kingdom of heaven move through the, through the poor, as the, as the Bible says here, it says, hey, it says, listen, my beloved, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? How do we pull the kingdom out of people who are in an economically poor situation? My mom, uh, she used to do this uh, uh, nursing home ministry. I used to go with her, and, and we did a lot of nursing home ministry, and I've got a lot of funny stories. Um, but there was, a, there, was, there, was a, there was a lady who, like, really liked my mom, and, and, and just, you know, she'd see her every time we'd walk in there. I think I was four or five years old, young. But I remember this lady very vividly, and, um, and so... Um, one day, she was not out in the area where, the common area where we did our little events. We'd sing songs and share Jesus with them. At Christmas time, we'd do, you know, gifts. And so we'd walk in there, and we would actually give, a, you know, multiple gifts to every single uh, patient in the nursing home. And, uh, I don't know, 50, 60 patients, something like that. And so and we just go and bless them and, and do that. So one day, and we walk in, and, and uh, I don't, I think her name's Helen. We'll call her Helen. Her name might, might be Helen. But Helen was not there, and so we went to Helen's room, and I went with my mom. And, and so we went in there, and there was just like a, an extra little something going on that day. And uh, there was an aroma in the room that wasn't appealing, that's for sure. And she was sick. There was just a lot, of, there was a lot going on. And so she, when you walked in, she just had like all this like crusty something around her mouth, and she, she had to shake. She didn't normally sh shake like she was, but she was shaking that day. And... and uh, and so uh, my mom shares this story, you know, that, you know, it was hard for her to love this woman. Just, you know, like germs and stuff and, you know, crusty things around. And she always wanted to give you a kiss, you know, because these are sweet old people who just wanted to give you a kiss, you know. And, um, and so, um, so one day she walks in and, and there was, a, there was a, just an old cup of supposed water on her kind of like her stand there next to her bed. And um, she offered my mom to drink. And it, it maybe it was water at one point. Didn't seem to be water now. Um, and uh, she, she just pointed and said, drink. And my mom was like, no, it's okay, it's okay. You know, kind of they had this whole exchange. And she said drink and kept going and kept going on and kept going. And all of a sudden, the Lord said, drink with her. And so she picked up the cup and she, she began to drink. She said it burned all the way down. And uh, when she set the cup down, the, the woman had big tears in her eyes. Pointed to the wall. She wasn't very verbal. And uh, pointed to the wall. And there was a picture of Jesus probably blonde hair and blue-eyed, but it was supposed to be Jesus. He would be like blonde hair, blue-eyed Jesus. And, and she said, you know him. And there was something so beautiful about this exchange that didn't require a lot of words, didn't require a lot of money, didn't require a Bible study or a good, nice three-point teaching for a revelation in that moment that as my mom was willing to sit with someone and do something the way that they do in the midst of their pain, their mess, that the reality of Jesus would become present. <laughs> it's like so many of us just want to give according to what we know. We want to give what we currently already have. See, it's, it's way more difficult to give something you don't have. It comes at such a greater cost. You know, and, and for some of us in the room, you know, it's like you, you hear about like nonprofit work and, and some of this, this whole like kind of social justice movement that's happening. And, and, you know, and many of us are like, oh, well, I can give. I, I have this and I have this and I have this. And, 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 and I think that in the invitation that God's giving us, you know, I, I, I've shared this, you know, multiple times. Forgive me if you've heard it already, but, 
you know, the Lord asking me, I, well, I asked the Lord, I'm like, Lord, what problems do you want us to solve? A year and a half ago, I asked him this. I said, Lord, what problems do you want us to solve? And uh, I'm like, Lord, I want to put more weight on the bar. I want to solve bigger problems. I want to have bigger expectations on what you want to do. And, uh, and Lord, I don't want miracles to be our destination. I want miracles to be our tools. So God, give us greater societal impact. And, uh, and so the Lord said, Drew, you're asking the wrong question. I said, Lord, what's the right question? He said, you might should be asking who you're supposed to adopt. And so the Lord began to take me down a journey of understanding that in the midst of connection, family, and adoption is where you begin to take on people's problems and whatever problems they have are the ones that you solve. But there's a, there's a grace on accepting responsibility for relationship with people that helps you to empower them to solve the challenges that are in their world. And I think one of our partialities that we have is that when we get into moments of wanting to have exchange with people who are in unfortunate uh, circumstances or situations, is that we want, just want to give them what we have because we just think if they, if they just do what we do or have what we have, then their life will change. You know, some people just think that, you know, if we could just, you know, teach them how to, you know, run their house the way that we run our house. If we could just teach them to, you know, um, you know, uh, take care of their car or prefer the type of car or to have a lesser car payment to manage their budget, then then they would be like, OK. And and so we have like all these principles that we feel strengthened by that have made our life really, really good. But how many know that if you're in the middle class, that those principles aren't going to serve the interests of the upper class? You thought I was going to say the poor. <laughs> You see, we have to translate for every people group that we're in front of. We have to learn to begin to understand what does the person in front of me actually need rather than how can I just, well, this is what I have. And, and if you just live life, you, you spend your money too much. You, you don't need that Escalade. That's $800 a month. You could be feeding the poor. You can get a Chevy Cruze for 200 a month. No money down. Good fri Black Friday. That was a joke. Did you get it? Uh-huh. Same for the poor. If you're there, someone who, who's economically poor and you're wanting to have a conversation about how you and the middle class manage your money, like that's a good, that's a good idea if that person needs to understand how to manage money, but they got to have money to manage first. Come on, somebody. And so... You know, if you've never been in an impoverished situation and know the other challenges that are that are usually um, less visible or less aware in the narrative of why they're in the situations that they're in. And you come with a money management conversation, you know, you, you may you, you might not actually be helping. I've been in poverty, grew up in poverty, extremely poor, extremely poor. From a first world standpoint, I was poor. I lived in America, which means I wasn't poor. But ultimately in America, I was poor. You get what I'm saying? Poor enough to not have Christmas gifts on Christmas Day. They, those showed up by Jesus a few times. That poor. Poor enough to eat expired TV dinners donated by the grocery store to have dinner that day. That poor. I know, I know what that's like, and I know the pressures and the challenges. I, I know what it's like to, to go to, you know, get your, your WIC card or whatever they call them now. I don't even know what they call these cards anymore. But I know what it, what it means to have to, like, e like, if you don't get that milk and those eggs and that bread through your WIC card, then, then like, you're, you're out. I, I know what that's like. I hated that waiting office as a child. I loathed it. You could feel the spirit of in the room. I didn't even know what it was. I didn't even understand, but I hated those moments because you could just feel the pain and the atmosphere that was surrounded by it. And honestly, it's hopelessness. You know, and if we ride into situations, you know, with our, with our, you know, whatever mentality that, that we, have, we, we all have, we all have a partiality according to how we've been raised. We all have, you know, the, the, the buzzword today is bias. And, and, and I think the narrative around this buzzword bias is getting skewed. So I don't even really like using it because I, I, I just think that that's whatever. So from a biblical standpoint, I like the word partiality. I think partiality, the story uh, on partiality is that we can't let external things judge the way that we handle people in front of us. 
we got to look at issues of the heart. we got to look at where people are at. And I tell you what, when, when, we, when we begin to, um, to deal with external issues of the heart, or I'm sorry, external issues and not the heart, we begin to actually judge people. And according to James, he's telling, uh, telling us this, that we begin to break the law. And then we begin to sow into judgment rather than mercy. And I tell you what, there, there's something powerful about, about the mercy that the church has. And, and I tell you, we have, you know, we have really so much mercy and the sense of our compassion and our generosity. And I think with that, God is now wanting to add a little bit of strategy. Come on. Jill, you shared that a strategy has changed your life. You didn't get up here and say, you know, and then I had a God encounter and then everything became better. Those are great moments when those happen. We want those. Can I get a big amen? But you shared how a structure and a strategy that was taught to you with people that were in your life reinforcing that, that are calling you, how you doing, what's going on. It was relationship that strengthened you in that moment. Come on, somebody. You know, for some of us who are a little bit impatient and like outcomes and want to get right to the point, you know, it's like, it's like our, 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 our word of wisdom is stop it. And that doesn't come at a great cost, does it? Why don't you just, like, stop doing that thing that you're doing? Like, just like just be like me. Like, if you're just like me, like, this is what I do. I mean, this is what works for me, so it should work for you. I just prayed three times, and my life got better, so why don't you do the same thing? That's Right? That works for everybody. H- how many know that when we create microwave solutions in the kingdom, we, we devalue the process and also the pain that people have gone through in the midst of their circumstance? Can I get a big amen on that? And so in relationship and in connection, all of a sudden we can begin to walk out some process with people that are in the midst of something that they can't overcome according to their current vantage point. Come on, somebody. And you may have something significant to offer them, but I tell you what, if you're only coming from your perspective, judging external issues about what you think transformation is going to look like in that place, and we don't actually begin to take on the heart of heaven and the understanding of heaven and a little bit of development and a little bit of preparation, come on somebody, it's in that moment when we gain those things, we can really infect change at such a larger level. And so we got to get ready. We got to make ourselves ready. Talked about getting our, getting our heart ready for do it again. I was declaring that during that transition. Let's get our heart in position. You know, because sometimes God wants to do something again. Actually, sometimes God has already done it again, and we just aren't seeing it. Come on. <laughs> you know, one of, the, one of the greatest things that ever happened to me was uh, that my family moved out of Kentucky. And we moved to Michigan, 1995. I was 16 years old, and uh, it, w- it was one of the best things that ever happened to me. And it was simply one of the best things that ever happened to me because, well, I began to get around people who thought differently than how my family thought. There was a way of thinking that had established patterns in my family's life that had kept us in poverty. You know, from what I know, like about five generations of poverty. And, and, and so by coming to Michigan, by saying yes to the Lord on a journey to come to Michigan, all of a sudden I got surrounded by people who thought differently than me and began to love me right where I was at. And, uh, and, and, I, and that, was, that was the beginning of a new journey for me to begin to pull out what was inside of me. You know, I, I have people right now who are giving me feedback about how, you know, when I'm speaking and ministering and doing different things, about what they perceive my development has been, what my journey has been, and it's way different than what the, the reality is. They, they think there's a lot of certificates behind me. There aren't. I got a few belt loops in the kingdom. That's what I have. You know, and it's interesting because when, 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 I, when I moved from, from Michigan, or I moved from Kentucky to Michigan, I had just gone through a really, like, um, a really difficult time in high school. I, w- I was bullied really, really heavily. And I've shared some of this with you guys lately. And, um, and so I had just gone through a really tragic injury. Um, I was jumped by two guys. Had to have reconstruction uh, on my face. And just, it was, it was terrible. My nose was, like, on the back of my head. And uh, just, you know, it, w- it was insane. And 
And so I, you know, got a lot of bad nicknames out of that because of how I looked and blah, 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 blah. And just everything bad about bullying, like I had the story going on. And so it was interesting because my junior year, we decided to move to Michigan. And this is, this is good for me. Like, I'm excited about this. Get me out of this high school that I was in. And a lot of it was just based off of, it was just so much ignorance. I mean, it was just, it was, it was just bad. So anyways, um, we, we moved to Michigan, and I think I'm going to get a massive reprieve. And, and yet, I just told you that the greatest thing that ever happened to me was I moved to Michigan. But when I got to Michigan, I showed up in my, in my Wrangler jeans. And, you know, at the time, there wasn't a thing called skinny jeans, everybody, unless you were a cowboy. And cowboys wore their jeans a little skinnier than the uh, people here in Michigan. And, uh, and so I had, I had cowboy boots as well. Again, from Kentucky, right? And, uh, and so when you show up in Michigan wearing regular jeans and cowboy boots, you kind of stick out. You know, uh, the high school I was in, uh, it wasn't, uh, whatever. The, uh, it was a thing. The, the most popular thing happening on a, on a Monday morning before school started was, you know, the, the low riders and, and uh, you know, Bone Thugs and Harmony and uh, See You at the Crossroads. Easy's Uncle Charlie, anybody? Got a few. All right. All right. Just a few of you guys. Anyways, um, so, <laughs> so, I mean, it was just, it, it, it was very much a very urban-influenced thing, not a country-influenced thing. And so um, I, I was like, the bullying just continued. Absolutely continued. And, uh, I mean, there were just days, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't know how I got home, to be honest with you. Uh, just running, ten guys hunting me down. Um, just trying to make it. You know, and it's funny because when, when two worlds that have opposing values get forced to be together, it's not always good what happens. And so here I am, a uh, poverty-thinking, good-natured young man who thinks just everyone should like me. And I still believe that, by the way. And doggone it, people like me. <laughs> I got a little more on that. Okay, now you're being nice. That was SNL, everybody. <laughs> okay. Uh, everyone's like, oh, yeah, we love you, Drew. Thank you. Um, that was SNL. Anyways, um. I thought I made a good joke. I didn't. You guys were being nice. So, um, and so there's, uh, th it's old school. I mean, it's 20 years ago. Anyways, but yeah, yeah. But anyways, uh, we, we have to begin to understand that how we, brought, how we were brought up changes us. It doesn't change us. It shapes us. It makes us. And when you take that and you put it into a situation, you know, that it, it's polarizing. You know, one of the reasons, I, I don't know if many of you guys know the, the history of, of the racial tension in Detroit or why it actually happened. Like, why specifically has Detroit had such a bad um, experience when it comes to, to race reconciliation and, and just unity and synergy? And, you know, one of the things, you know, during the Second World War, um, the, the government was really trying to pump out, you know, artillery equipment and and, and, and new planes and, and war vehicles and different things like that. And they begin to go into the South and fill up busloads of African-Americans and bring them into, into Michigan to try to get the factories to go while people were at war or just, uh, just simply out of increased production. One of the things that they didn't begin to plan for was how, where these people were going to live and uh, with their families, with their children. And so um, many of them just kind of followed step in with the Jews at Lafayette Square. And Lafayette Square is the, is the plot of land between Jefferson, 375, and Gratiot. And it's beautiful now. It's a beautiful place to live. Actually, some of the very expensive condos are there now that, uh, that I wish I owned one of them. So, um, and so the, so in that place was like a squatter's village. And the Jews had, 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 had come in there because U of M was one of the first um, high, um, you know, highly influential um, learning institutions that was accepting Jews. And so you couldn't get into an Ivy League school as a Jew. And so they all came to Detroit um, looking for jobs and looking for education. And so there was a massive population that were here. They were in Ann Arbor. They were all around. Um, but there was a squatter's village there by the Jews. And so as they had begun to, they had begun, uh, they got here in the, 
the teens, essentially, uh, 1910, 1920, uh, the 10 years, there's a massive influx into Detroit by the Jews. And so um, by the time that African-Americans started getting in Detroit, there were none here before this, hardly any. All right. And so the government began to bust them in. They just took over Squatters Village. And here they are, people who um, they're starting to get some employment, but they can't get a loan. They didn't have any money and they're barely getting by. And and all of a sudden you have people in Detroit who were predominantly white, um, who were working their jobs, having their story, building the strongest middle class economy in history at that time. And then all of a sudden they're working alongside of somebody who has different values, a different experience and a different way to express life. And we just think that they're all going to get along because we we're, we're just, you know, living the American dream. <laughs> Right. And so it's amazing because they came in the north and the north was like historically, you know, I mean, it's north was a good place to be. You know, the north fought to, to end slavery. The north, the north had generally values that were pro restoration of, of, of races. And yet here they are. There's a conflict beginning to happen. And then the conflicts begin to increase. And people we white people didn't treat black people good. In Detroit. Go read the news clippings. It wasn't good. It wasn't humane. It wasn't. And then on top of it, you know, you have weird government intervention with government housing and substance. Like, and that was a terrible experiment they did here. And um, just there's stories that are crazy. We had riots in 1943, right during the Second World War. We've got all these people are over in war. And now they're, you know, the guy who couldn't go to war. Um, is in the factory, and now someone else just took his best friend's job, and he's probably a little bit partial. And he's wondering if his best friend, when he comes back from war, is going to get his job back. And someone who he doesn't have a value for because he was raised differently is having a conflict, just like Drew Neal had a conflict as a hillbilly when he showed up to Clarkson High School. And those people didn't know what to do with me. They didn't know what to do what to do with a person who wore cowboy boots and Wrangler jeans and had a little bit of an accent. They didn't know what to do with that. They didn't know what to do with that with a person who thought that everyone should like them. They didn't know what to do with me. So they fought me. They beat me. They punished me. They ridiculed me. They embarrassed me. Because they didn't understand me. Come on, somebody. And so in 1943, we have the first round of major riots here in our city, and all because we didn't understand. All these pressures, all these dynamics are going on, and the, and the story just goes on and continues, and, and to give it full respect, I mean, you need to hear all the details, but there, there, there's so much there, and, and, and in riots in, in, in the late 60s, all of a sudden, you know, we had the most fledging economy in the 1950s, the, the most booming economy in the nation was in Detroit. Things are going, and we use money to put Band-Aids over things, and I'm telling you this, money doesn't put Band-Aids over love. You can't buy love. We have a really fledging economy right now. And I tell you what, money helps a lot, but money doesn't change the position of the heart. And we have a need as a people to, if we're going to impact Detroit, we need to understand a little more of this story. So that we can understand, not if people are right and wrong, it's not about what's, you know, it's not about who's right and wrong, it's about what is right and what is wrong. And if I'm not right, then I need to accept that. And if someone else isn't right, they need to accept that. Part of the process is, am I willing just to let a human talk and share their side of the story? Can I get a big amen? We need some Republicans and some Democrats to hear one another's sides of the story. Come on, somebody. We need some blacks and some whites to sit down together and to begin to hear each other's stories. Can I get a big amen? If we're going to infect Detroit, you guys, we got to have a strategy of reconciliation. Oh. And we got to understand and maybe use words, for sure use our ears. And the thing that's not going to happen is that we are not going to be a predominantly white church that goes in with a savior mentality into Detroit. Because that's not the church that I lead. And that's not who you are. That's not who we are. There's a need for us to understand. There's a need for us to come into greater um, education and development to know what it means to reach those who are in a different situation than us and not, you, and not come in with our assumptions. 
Is this okay? I'm sorry, you guys. I didn't mean to get heavy. I'm just, I'm talking on my passion right now, not off my notes. I apologize. But this is like, you can't get it, you can't love Detroit and not want to see racial reconciliation. We're fraudulent if we don't get educated on this. We're fraudulent if we don't understand. Now there's a na- there's a narrative, I'm going to get in trouble here. There's, there's a narrative that I think is higher than the problem. There's a major problem. And, but there's a narrative that's got everyone up on pins and needles about the problem. And, and, and I think if we actually begin to engage, we'd have strategies really quickly. Uh, not really quickly. I don't want to simplify, oversimplify it. But we would have a path that could be seen about how we could go and love people and bring restoration like never before. Because I think conversation will always override anxiety. I think there's a lot of anxiety right now. There's a lot of feelings and emotions that aren't really considerate of the facts of what's actually going on. Come on, somebody. You know, facts like women make way more money between the age of 18 and 35. If you have no children and you've never been married, you make the most money in America right now. Did you know that? There's a, there's a, there's a wage inequality gap, and men are not winning. No one tells you that, though. No one tells us about what's actually going on. There's narratives and data is just manipulated in a bunch of different ways to just protect interests that are going on. And until you have conversations with where people are at and how they actually live, like what do you actually need? I hear this, but you're a person, you're a human, and I'm a human. So let's, have, let's, let's, let's understand Let's not just show partiality out of the narrative, everybody. Come on, somebody. Let's not be aligned with political parties. Let's not be aligned with what we think we understand. Come on, if you grew up in Detroit and you were there till the 1970s and then you left, don't think that you understand Detroit right now because you don't. You've been gone a long time. And a lot's changed. You might know the story, but you might not know where things are at right now. Things are moving at a pace like never before. And I tell you what, there is a brilliance, and there is a, there's something happening in the city that is so inspiring. Like, I have so much to learn, and I'm so excited about getting my hands even more dirty as I go into the city of Detroit and learn from the brilliant leaders that are there that are doing amazing things. I don't think people need to be told what to do. I think they need, to be, they need to be loved while they take the greatest risk of their lives. And so I don't, I don't need a, we don't need some, we're going to fix everything plan. I mean, we're a small group of people. There's 5.2 million people in Metro Detroit. We're not the heroes. We're not the one and only. But we are going to be contributors. And we are going to be people who want to understand that you can infect real, sustainable change. Come on, somebody. And so one of the things I've been rehearsing with the Lord is like, Lord, help me know what I don't know. <laughs> it sounds kind of funny to say it that way, but it's true. Lord, help me to know what I don't know. You know, we all have blind spots in our cars when we're driving. And you don't, you know, the, the problem with, you know, deception is that you don't know you're deceived. The problem with partiality is that you don't know the fruit of that in the moment oftentimes. There's, there's, there's assumptions that are, that are motivating these things. And, uh, and, and so as, you know, as people, as believers who want to look like Jesus, we need to long after the one who does know. Come on. Because he does know which means we can know. Come on. God, what do you want me to know that I don't know? <laughs> you guys have been really gracious today to let me share some of my heart. I don't, I don't believe that all my thoughts are complete. There's, there's, there's a lot that I'm, I'm really going to war right now on. And it's specifically these things. I think we have narrative challenges that are bigger than the problems that we have to get through all the stuff people are talking about to actually get to the things that people are living in. 
do that means you, you can't do it from here. Like this is the place to make money, not the place to know somebody. Because it's going gonna, it's gonna to come at a cost. And so I may have offended some of you, and I'm so sorry. Like I'm, I'm, ta- I'm just talking. And this is where I'm at. This is where I am. And, 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 and my mess and what I am and what I'm not. I'm sure I said some things. You're like, well, obviously, Drew, you're saying no partiality. And you said some of the par- oh. Then tell me. Tell me. Let's just talk. Let's figure it out. Let's grow. Let's, let's, let's just be motivated. It's like, to me, I'm just, and I'm going to close, I'm just unsatisfied. And I've always been this way. And I, I know you guys are this way. It's, it's why we're connected right now. But it's like, we are unsatisfied with just doing business as usual and just like having church. Like, none of you are here on a Saturday because you're bored. You're here because you're motivated. Like, you're a world changer. And you want to do something about it. And I tell you what, the, this is what I promise to do to, for, you know, with us. Is I promise, as a leader, to be willing to go first. That's all that I promise to do. And I tell you what, I, I don't, I don't, you know, I think when people decide to go first, other people follow along. And I, and I think there, you know, there can be some, some fear over agenda and the narratives and all the other stuff, all the action. It's like, how can, you know, the narrative, and I said this last week, and, but, you know, there's like, there's some people in the media that are saying, you know, that I, I don't have a voice in, in, the, in the world right now because I'm what's wrong with the world. It's a narrative. Me, as, as, a, as, a, as a Caucasian, you know, 39-year-old man, I am the perfect demographic of what's wrong with the world. This is in the news. Like, it's, it's, there's, there's quoting statistics, right? So it's like there's a statistic over everybody, though, right? Everyone, if they want to become a victim, could go find their statistic and hide behind it, right? And so what are we going to do to overcome a statistic and get through the BS of the narrative so we can actually get connected with people's hearts? That's what I want us to do, and that's what I promise to be willing to do. Is I'll get out, let's wade through the narratives, and let's just show up with our love, put on our love, and ask God what we don't know, and then ask a bunch of questions with other people who are succeeding in the area that we need to grow in. Can I get a big amen? Can we get our fire smart? Amen. Let's get our fire smart, everybody. <laughs> and let's see what the Lord wants to do.